Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you've saved us, that you keep our hearts beaten, keep us alive so that we can bring you glory and shine as lights in this dark world. Pray, Lord, that you would encourage us today, that you would knit our hearts together in love, that you would help us to understand the wealth and the joy and the peace that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to meditate on you and your word. May we gaze upon your beauty, and may we, Lord, just be strengthened, and would you increase our faith today in you. And so forgive us, Lord, cleanse us where we've gone astray. Help us to stay on that narrow path that leads to life. So unite us in love, Lord. Guard us from the evil one and encourage our hearts in Christ today. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's message is The Riches of Christ. The Riches of Christ. I was doing some thinking about sports recently as uh, I think uh, MLB is heading into the playoffs. Though I might have seen one game this year. I don't even know if I caught one game. Um, I guess the older I get, the less... The older I get, the less sports I'm watching. I don't know. Maybe I'll get back into it. But the NFL just started, and I think competitiveness and sports and competition, I think they're ingrained in human nature. The sports sector generates $620 billion of revenue every year. I looked up an article that talked about the World Cup and those who watched it in 2006, it said 30 billion people. And I read it at first, 30 billion people watched the 2006 World Cup in Germany. I'm like, wait, there not there like 7 or 8 billion people in the world? So how is it 30 billion people watch this? And they said they tallied up all the views from each game of the World Cup because there's more than one. They totaled them all up, 30 billion views. Pretty crazy. That was one of the most, if not the most watched sports events, or not even sports, just any television show or event in history, television history. According to roadtrips.com, the Tour de France averages 3.5 billion viewers. The World Cup, 3.3 billion. World Cricket Cup, 2.6 billion. Isn't that crazy? 2.6 billion people watching cricket. Have you ever seen a cricket? I don't know what they call it. Cricket event? Cricket game? I've never watched that, but... Summer and Winter Olympics, 2 billion each. Women's World Cup, 1.12 billion people watch that. The Super Bowl, 112 million. World Series, 14 million views. I see it, the World Series should be number one. Tour de France, swap that with the World Series. That's my opinion. For just 14 million. Where's all the baseball fans? NCAA's Final Four, 18 or so million. But this mass appeal for sports and competition, of course, it's not a modern phenomenon. In biblical times, they didn't have the Tour de France or the World Cup, but they did have chariot races. They did have the javelin and the long jump and foot races and wrestling and boxing, all of which were part of the Grecian Olympic Games and what's known also as the Isthmus Games, located right there in Corinth. And so we have all this athletic imagery in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters. And so some scholars believe that Paul actually attended the Olympic Games or the Isthmus Games of his day. In the book, The Life and the Epistles of St. Paul, listen to what the author states. And it's quite a long quote, so bear with me for just a minute here. He states, quote, 
The Isthmus of Corinth was one of the four sanctuaries where the most celebrated games were periodically held. An interesting question suggests itself here whether the apostle was ever himself present during the Isthmus games. It might be argued a priori that this is highly probable, for great numbers came at these seasons from all parts of the Mediterranean to witness or take part in the contests. And it is likely that the apostle, just as he desired to be at Jerusalem during the Hebrew festivals, so would gladly preach the gospel at a time when so vast a concourse met at the Isthmus, whence as from a center it might be carried to every shore with the dispersion of strangers. But further, it will be remembered that on his first visit, St. Paul spent two years at Corinth, and though there is some difficulty in determining the times at which the games are celebrated, yet it seems almost certain that they recurred every second year at the end of spring or at the beginning of summer. So he believes every two years were these Isthmus games, and Paul stayed two years at Corinth, most likely. Maybe he visited twice while staying there because they're two years apart. And his mission was to spread the gospel. Many would come from all over the Mediterranean to these games, and then they would be dispersed out from there. And, and Paul strategically, most likely, went to these games, preached the gospel. The word was spread from there. And, and it was knocking two birds out with one stone, so to speak. And he got to attend the games. So it's a hypothetical, but I'd like to think that maybe Paul attended these games. Last week, we concluded Colossians chapter 1, and we looked at how Paul labored and strived, and we looked at that Greek word agonizomai, and that's a Greek word that talks about striving like an athlete. So Paul has used that imagery in chapter 1 already, and he uses that same word in a similar word, agon, and he uses these words in Philippians 1.30, 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, 1 Corinthians 9.25, 1 Timothy 6.12, where he says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life by which you are called and made the good confession. And so fight the good fight. Agonize, Timothy. Fight like a boxing, like an athlete, like a boxer. And then Colossians 2.1. I want you to turn to Colossians. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses of Colossians chapter 2 today. But just to look at verse 1 briefly, Colossians 2.1. Paul states here, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. There we see again the struggle, agon. It, it, it's used, um, as I mentioned, in several different places, but the ancient Greek writers used this word agon as a word that described athletic contests. And even in these Greek writers, it specified the Olympic Games. Agon. It's used in the NIV as contending. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you. If you have an NIV, that's what it states. If you have a King James, it says conflict. What a conflict I've been going through for you and those who are at Laodicea. And we know that this letter was also to be distributed to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea is about 10 miles. You can even look on a map today. Go on Google. Laodicea is about 10 miles northwest of Colossae, so it's, it's 10 miles away, and we know from chapter 4 that this man named Tychicus was delivering this letter to the Colossians, and then Paul says, after he delivers this letter to you, make sure you give it to the church in Laodicea. 
So we have that church and that city mentioned here in verse 1. And Paul's saying, man, I've struggled for you guys. I've labored. I've agon is the Greek word. I've agonized for you. Not only for you guys, but for those who haven't seen my face. Imagine that. He's, he's suffering. He's sacrificing his life. Not only for those whom he's ministered to personally, but for those he hasn't even met. What amazing love Paul has for the churches. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 9. So let's read, start at verse 1 again. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You could say these first nine verses, the beginning of chapter two is like a recapitulation of chapter one with some of the same themes that Paul is driving home. Who is Christ? Who are you to be in Christ? What's, why, why am I struggling for you, Colossians? Why am I struggling for those at Laodicea? Why am I struggling for Christians? What could lead you astray? Matthew eleven twenty five. You know this verse, Jesus stated, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. And again, we see in this chapter that Paul talks about this mystery revealed, Jesus Christ, this mystery revealed to not the wise, as Jesus said, or the learned, but revealed them to babes. He's revealed these truths to little children. So what Paul's writing isn't meant to be rocket science. It isn't meant to be some pseudoscience or some highly intellectual philosophy. He's just preaching Jesus. Here is Jesus. He's trying to show them who Christ is so that they'll understand, truly know Christ, and then live for him. Very basic, yet very hard to apply. You know, the word remember is used over 200 times in the Bible. And I perhaps use the word remember 200 times every day with my kids. It's like, remember to do that. Leah sometimes is like, it gets so frustrated. It's like, how many times do I have to tell you to pick that up right there? It's like, all right, let me tell you again. It's like, it's very simple, but man, you guys just don't get it. And I feel like that's what God's trying to show us. He's like, here's some simple things. And here's Paul. Let me just lay out. I'm going to lay out chapter one again for you and just a little bit of a different angle in a different way. You might not catch it, but you need the reminders. So number one for today, Paul, why do you agonize for the churches? Why do you struggle for them? He already talked about that towards the end of chapter one. He's picking it back up here. Why struggle? Verse two, the answer's found. Number one, that their hearts may be encouraged. He wants 
the churches to be encouraged in Christ. That's the heart of Christ, to be encouraged. And the Greek word here is parakaleo. It comes from parakletos. And parakletos is the name given to the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the, the encourager, the one who exhorts, the one who means to come alongside. And Paul is saying, I want your hearts to be refreshed. That's why I struggle, so that you would be encouraged in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 8, he talks about Tychicus, who I brought up earlier. He sends Tychicus to them, and he tells them why in chapter 4, verse 8. And he says that your hearts may be encouraged. I believe it's the same Greek word there. I'm going to even send my close friend in the faith so that when he brings this letter to you, you'll be encouraged by him and his love for you, and you'll be encouraged when you read this letter. And then send this to the Laodiceans so they can be encouraged as well. So that's number one. Second reason why Paul struggles and labors, he tells us in verse two, having been knit together in love. He wants their hearts to be knit together in love. It's this Greek word, sumbibadzo, and it comes from another Greek word, embibadzo. I'll be looking at several Greek words today and try to pronounce them the best I can. But it comes from a word that means to board a ship. It's as if Paul's saying, get on board with love. Get on board with the concept of loving each other, of being united in Jesus Christ. Get off the ship, so to speak, of the world, the, the Titanic that's sinking, which Pastor Joe did a great teaching on that a couple months ago, the Titanic going down and even this that thing that they went to go look at the Titanic recently in and that whole story that I don't want to get into, and it's not in my notes, but get off... Get off the ship of the world of anxiety and, and fear and self-centeredness. Get on the ship of encouragement, comfort, consolation, love. That's, that's what we need to get on board with. I almost called this teaching get on board. Like That's what Paul's saying here. Get on board with encouragement and consolation and love. and Get on board with putting others before yourselves. And get off board with all the things that this world is trying to drag you down into. And then he gives a third thing in verse 2, and it's wealth. He says, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. How much time do you spend thinking about money? If you're in finance, if you're an accountant, you might say, well, that's my job. I, talk, I think about money all day long. Is it wrong to think about money? No. I think Jesus talked about money more than a lot of other topics. But when it starts to consume us to the point where we're anxious and we're worried or we're fearful, that's where we know we've crossed the line into unhealthy thoughts about finances. Jesus, as I mentioned, talked a lot about finances. Several stories in the New Testament, um, pictures of what are we going to do, Jesus? We don't have money. If you remember Peter Jesus, we need to pay the temple tax. Uh, we, we don't have money. Matthew 17, 27. Go fishing, Peter. Go catch a fish. You'll, you'll go get some money over there. Okay, cool. John chapter 6. It says Jesus tested his disciples. You guys got enough fish and loaves to feed the 5,000 over here? How much money do we have? Knowing they clearly didn't have enough. Okay. 
bring me what we have. Okay, a couple fish, a couple loaves. He multiplies them. He w- what is he trying to show Peter? What is he trying to show the disciples in John 6, Matthew 17? Matthew 6, 26. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Look, look at the birds. They just chirp and fly around and they're cared for. He's like, aren't you, don't you know that you're worth much more than these? The Gentiles eagerly seek after money. That, like that's first and foremost. Like I, I, I got to have the house. I got to have the money. That's all got to be, you know, laid out. That's what I'm seeking after. That's what I'm striving for. If you want to use Paul's word for agon and agonizomai for the world, it's they're agonizing first and foremost for money. They're agonizing for themselves, selfish ambitions. And Jesus says it's not to be so with you. Agonize, strive to enter through the narrow gate. If you're going to agonize, agonize for the kingdom. Agonize to see souls saved. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says don't strive for the food that perishes. Strive for the imperishable food. Strive for eternal life. And then people can take that as, okay, so I'm not supposed to get my finances in order, and I'm not supposed to work hard, and I'm not supposed to pursue these things. And, of course, the answer is, no, you are supposed to work hard. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. Christians should be the hardest workers. They should be the most financially sound because whose money is it? It's not ours, it's God's. So we, as we take in money, we should go, Lord, this is yours. We should be the best stewards in the world of money and finances because we're saying, God, it's yours and whatever you want me to do with this. And it's typically those that work hard that are good stewards that God's going to bless in those ways. But we must remember it's his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Listen to what God says. Haggai 2.8 The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Job 41, 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I love that. God's like, it's all mine. There's not one square inch of the universe where God doesn't say, mine. It's all his. And guess what? You know him. When, the, when your best friend says the whole universe is mine, what do you have to fear? What do you have to worry about? I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. I don't know about finance. I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. It's like the God of the universe, who everything in this universe is his, he upholds all things by the power of his word. Will he not care for you? Of course he will. We just need more faith. We need to trust him. So Paul struggles so that these Christians will attain wealth. He struggles so that they'll attain true wealth, which is knowing Jesus Christ. That's true riches. So that whether you have billions of dollars or you have a couple pennies to your name, you could say I'm wealthy because I know Jesus Christ. I'm rich in him. And that's why 
we can go to third world countries as some of us have and you can meet people that are jumping up and down with joy you go to these church services like I have in Mexico and they they barely have running water they barely have enough food and they're in there singing their hearts out to the Lord they're jumping up and down with joy it's a beautiful thing to see you bring them some rice and some beans and it's as if you're bringing them a million dollars they're so thankful they're full of gratitude they're full of worship and they don't know maybe where they're getting tomorrow's meal and then you have people that are billionaires you have people that are rich some being Christians and they're ungrateful they're worried they're anxious and they're lacking in joy we need the true joy which comes from the true wealth found in Jesus Christ and this that's Paul's heart this is why he struggles so that Christians would be wealthy and know the wealth that comes through Jesus Christ. And there's so many things in this world and our culture that are trying to get our eyes off of Christ and onto the wealth of the world to where we're on that shaky ground or or not on that solid rock to where we have that wealth and joy in Christ. Point number two, Paul wants Christians to know the true Christ, not some false Christ, not some Christ who only existed when he came into this world, not some Christ who is a God and not the God, the eternal God. He wants them to know the true Christ and who he is. And he says in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some of the treasures. All of them are found in Jesus Christ. You know, I thought of this illustration. Um, For those of you who have, those of you women who have delivered babies. Was that a painful experience? Some of you have recently done that, talking to my wife about that. And for some of you that have got the epidural, you'd probably say, well, after that, it, it, it was nice. It wasn't painful. But I think Leah, with our first, with Leland, it was like 20 hours, 24 hours in labor. It was like, I'm sitting there like, is this ever going to end? At one point, I just passed out on the couch next to her, and I'm like, you got this. And I joked with her, I'm like, this is exhausting, you know? (laughs) This is painful for men, honey. And she's like, she gets mad. So I'm glad when she's in nursery, I can say things in the message I normally wouldn't. But what if someone told you it's not painful? What if someone that never experienced it was like, no, it's not that painful. Stop being a baby. Get over it. You would say, I experienced it. I knew the pain firsthand. And it doesn't matter what you say, you're not going to convince me otherwise. At least that's what I would think you would say. I'm answering for you. In a sense, that's what Paul is saying, I believe, to these Christians in Colossae. You, when you experience Jesus Christ, when you know him, when you understand all the wealth that is found in him, it doesn't matter what philosophy, what argument, how hard someone tries to convince you of something else, you're not going to jump ship. Because you've experienced him and you have that joy and peace and that overflowing of love in him, you're not going to want to go for anything else. So the question is, do you know him? And are you wanting to grow in that knowledge of him? And that's what Paul says in verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Know that Christ has all the wealth of treasures and wisdom, of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all found in him so that no one can lead you astray. And he uses this word in verse 2, towards the end of verse 2, epigonosis. 
you know, a lot of people think that scholars and commentators and whatnot, Paul's writing against Gnosticism, which is from the Greek word gnosis. And so interestingly enough, Paul's going to use gnosis throughout this letter and many of the letters that are combating Gnosticism. And he's going to say, no, this is true knowledge. This is true epigenosis, not this false form of gnosis, this false knowledge like Gnosticism. Satan's always hijacking terms. He's always hijacking things from the scripture. Like the rainbow, it's a beautiful thing. And yet it's been hijacked. Gnostic or gnosis, just a Greek word. They've hijacked it into this false teaching, this false religion. And so Paul says at the end of verse 2, the true knowledge of God's mystery is Christ himself. And it's, it's that true knowledge, that experiential knowledge, that first-hand knowledge. And Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count it as but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, that I might be found in him. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 10 of Philippians, that I might know him. Gnosis, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, being conformed unto his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I've let everything else go. It's rubbish compared to Christ and knowing him. There's surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then he goes on to say, I, that I might know him, to grow in that knowledge of him. We never fully attain it on this side of eternity, but we're constantly reaching. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see the striving after Jesus. I want to know more of him. That's how it should be in our walks with the Lord, striving to know more of Christ. So you could say the poorest Christian who truly knows Jesus is more wealthy than the world's richest people, billionaires, almost now trillionaires, it seems. So Paul's combating this false form of knowledge, and we see it in verse 9. just want to camp out at verse 9 just for a minute, a couple minutes. I want to share some commentaries on this verse. It's a big verse in this passage. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Knocking out two birds with one stone, I think, yet again, we could say, Jesus is fully God, deity, and fully man, something that all false faiths attack that Jesus came in bodily form. So, what faiths attack this verse? Muslims, they believe that Jesus was just a prophet. He wasn't God in the flesh. Mormons, our Mormon friends, they believe Jesus was a created being. He wasn't deity. He wasn't, he wasn't deity in a way that he was God and always God from everlasting to everlasting, but that he attained godhood, and we can as well. Of course, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what this verse is teaching either. King James says the fullness of the Godhead. The fullness of who God is dwelt in Christ bodily. So when you see Christ, you see someone who takes on flesh and blood. You see a human in front of you, but you're actually looking at God Almighty. Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is merely an angel and one of many gods. 
You have New Age adherents, Hindus, Buddhists. They believe he was just a good teacher, that he was enlightened. So almost every heresy, like I said, attacks this verse. Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, even some of, if you will, the things that we call cults, Latter-day Saints, Oneness Pentecostals, Christadelphians, and many, many others. One commentary states, almost all heresy has begun by some form of the denial of the great central truth of the incarnation of the Son of God, that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, entered this world. So this word deity, it's theotes. So the Greek word for God is theos, and this Greek word here is theotes, very closely related, and it means deity. Greek lexicon, if you look up Thayer's Greek lexicon, it states the state of being God. Barnes' commentary states, no language could therefore more clearly demonstrate the divinity of Christ. Of what mere man or of what angel could it be used? Of what person could you say that all the deity dwelt in him in bodily form? Of what angel could you say that of? The Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary states, he as a man was not merely godlike, but in the fullest sense, God. You have Gill's commentary which states, quote, the fullness of the divine nature of all the perfections of deity, such as eternity and immensity and omnipresence and omnipotence and omniscience, immutability, necessary and self-existence and every other, if any one perfection was wanting, if he was lacking any of these perfections of God, the fullness, much less the fullness of the Godhead, would not be in him. He's saying you couldn't say it was the fullness of God in him if he lacked but just one of the qualities of God all the qualities of God, everything that comprises God was in Christ. Pretty amazing. So Paul says to us why he's labored for these churches. He again presents to us who Christ is, fully God, in whom is the fullness of wisdom and knowledge. And then number three, Paul defines what a complete Christian looks like. If you want to know what does it look like to be a complete Christian, because as we read last week in Colossians 1.28, he tells us why he labored in that chapter, at the end of that chapter, that every man with all wisdom, would he'd be able to present them complete in Christ. So what does it look like to be a complete Christian? Verses 5 through 7 tell us. And so I just want to walk through these one by one here. Seven is the number of completion interestingly enough in scripture and this is I think signifying what it looks like to be a complete Christian these seven marks let me give them to you and then we'll we'll walk through them one by one uh, pretty briefly number one disciplined number two stable number three progressing number four rooted number five built up number six established and number seven thankful these are seven qualities every Christian should strive for and want to increase in. And so we start at verse 5. Paul says, for even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your, number one, good discipline. King James and several other translations translate it order. Good discipline. He says, I'm rejoicing to see that you guys are in arrangement. It's actually a military term. It's taxis in the Greek. It's ordered troop, a cohort. It's 
the troop that's arranged in descending rank. Paul's saying, I rejoice to see that your church is ordered. I'm, re- I'm rejoicing to see that your lives are ordered in Christ, that you, that you have your priorities straight, that Jesus Christ is first and foremost in your life. How is the church to be in order if the Christians that comprise it, if their lives are not in order? And so Paul's now praising them. You're doing well in this area. I remember at church, and perhaps I've shared this before, growing up, I, my mom would have me get dressed for my baseball games and then go to church. And I think I even wore my cleats into church as well because I wanted to look cool. Kind of could have waited till after church to get to the game, then put the cleats on. But I'd walk into church, my hat, my jersey, my pants rolled up, my, my cleats on, and I'm in there uh, worshiping the Lord. And she wanted me to know priorities. This is what comes first. Church comes first. If you have a game on Sunday and it conflicts with church, you're going to church, okay? I think she'd get mad at the coaches. Like, you guys need to stop scheduling baseball games on Sunday, okay? And she would tell them that, I think. I don't know if she did or not. They're like, we don't schedule the games. Uh, We understand, you know, we want to go to church too. But she would dress me up. And then after worship or even after the service, she would drive me over to the game. And if we were late, then she'd let the coach know why, because we were at church. And that's stuck with me all these years later that she kept her priorities straight. She wanted me to know this is the order of things. First the Lord and then family and then sports. So it's even third on the list or fourth. But it's still important to everything unto the glory of God, right? Number two. Number two at the end of verse five. He says the stability of your faith in Christ. Second thing he praises the church for that they're stable. Their faith is stable. Stereomai is the Greek word. It means steadfast, constant, firm, solid, immovable. I looked up an article yesterday as I was putting this together titled Women's Prayer Closet, Only Thing Left Standing After Tornado Wipes Away Home. There's a picture online of a house that's completely decimated there's literally nothing left but a concrete slab and her prayer closet it was three years ago in alabama this tornado ravaged several cities 23 people died and this lady i think it was was an anonymous person snapped a picture of just her prayer closet standing up and i thought that's a great illustration that when the wind and the waves and the storms of life come our way, Paul's saying, you're stable. You're secure. You are built upon the rock of Christ. We need faith like that, unshakable. Luke 17, 5, the disciples pray, Lord, increase our faith. That should be a prayer, I believe, pretty regularly of us believers. We have faith. We know Christ. Lord, I want to know you more. Lord, I want to have stronger faith. I want to have a deeper faith. I want to know you more. Number three, progressing. Verse six, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. Peripateo is the Greek word. It means to make progress towards Christ, to walk in him, to conform your life to Christ. There's a song that states, above and below me, before and behind me, in every eye that sees me, Christ be all around me. 
Your life, your death, your blood was shed for every moment, for every moment. There's a reason we named our son Leland. That song is by Leland. When Leah and I were first getting to know each other, that's all we listened to pretty much. We loved this band Leland, and like many bands, it's like they start now compromising in certain ways, but some of their songs still speak to my heart at least. So by God's grace, he doesn't want us to be stagnant in our faith. He doesn't want us to go backwards in our faith. He wants us to walk in Christ, which means progress in him, to be conformed to him, and that means there's growth. That means there's steps that need to be taken. That means that we're in his word. We're studying ourselves to show ourselves approved, as Paul tells Timothy, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, wanting to know the, the Lord through his word, praying to him, essentially begging him for more grace in our life so that we can be more like him. Number four, rooted. Verse seven, having been firmly rooted. Hirazu is the Greek word here. It's strong roots, thoroughly grounded. I looked up, what are the longest roots in the world? I think the deepest roots are 400 feet, according to one article I looked up. But the longest roots, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, is from a single winter rye plant, which has been shown to produce 386.9 miles of roots in the earth. I, that's just 386 miles of roots? That's a good root system right there. I don't think that's going anywhere if there's some storms. Pretty good. According to rye-sus.eu, the entire root system of a single rye plant can consist or the one that they looked at consisted of 13,815,672 branches. 13 million branches on a single rye plant. Interesting. That's what kind of roots we need to have. Just thoroughly rooted in Christ, in his word, grounded in the truth. So what that when errors come our way, and that's what Paul's getting across to these Colossians. These false teachers are coming in. They're, they're coming at you with, from all different directions. You need to be rooted in Christ. You need to be rooted. Acts 2.42, the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer and fellowship. The apostles are teaching them. He's saying, grab a hold of this teaching. Be rooted in it. Be rooted in Christ so nothing will lead you astray. Number five. Number five, built up, verse seven, and being built up, in him. Epoi kodimeo. To be built upon. It means to finish the structure of which the foundation has already been laid. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. We build our lives upon him. Paul says one man plants and other waters, but God is the one who does the increase. He gets all the credit. But if we're in him and we're growing and we're progressing and a lot of these traits that Paul's describing are in a sense going with one another or overlapping and so here he's talking about being built up in Christ and I thought of the illustration of going to Mexico and as you as you drive down the coast at least in Baja California you see many houses many structures and buildings where they're not finished you see that maybe part of the roof has been constructed you see a wall over here and then or whatever it may be whatever part of the house and then they just stop and you, you just see a ton of these buildings as you're driving down there. It's I guess they ran out of money. They didn't, as Jesus said, count the cost when you're building. And so they get 
all giddy and they maybe they got some money together and they start building and it's like oh darn on to the next thing and you see this as you're driving down to Mexico or through Mexico at least I have and I don't I've driven down several times over the years and it was as if the same structures still weren't being finished so pretty crazy but that's what we're not to be right that's an illustration of what not to be as a Christian that you're constantly building upon the rock of Christ. You're constantly increasing in faith. Or as Paul says at the end of his life, I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've fought the good fight. So that you can say at the end of your life, no, it's not a half-completed structure. No, I, I'm complete in Christ. I'm ready to go meet him. I've given everything to him. No regrets. My conscience is clean before the Lord. Or as I say, live each day as if you'll spend tomorrow and eternity live each day as if you'll stand before the lord tomorrow and give an account for your life and we can do that with a clear conscience if there's anything on our conscience we could say i give it to you right now lord thank you that you've cleansed me thank you that you've washed me anew cool continue to build my house thank you lord keep growing keep increasing in knowledge number six established verse seven established in your faith just as you were instructed. And the Greek word here is behayu. It means fully reliable, secure, strengthened. It's as if Paul is using different Greek words to communicate the same thing, right? He so much so wants this church, wants us to be strengthened in our faith, to be secure, to be steadfast, to be immovable. It's as if he's just picking different Greek words to say the same thing. I don't want you to be led astray from the gospel. I don't want you to be deceived by the enemy and these false teachers. I just want you to be secure and grounded in Christ. And I'm going to use different angles and different Greek words and whatever means I can to explain how passionately I just want you to know Christ and be secure in him. Strong Christians, discerning Christians, disciplined Christians who are stable in their faith. That's what I believe is Paul's heart, and that's actually God's heart. And here's number seven. Number seven at the end of verse seven for a complete Christian, overflowing with gratitude. Show me a person who's overflowing with gratitude. Show me a Christian who's overflowing with thankfulness. I'll show you a mature Christian, a fully grown Christian. If you can give thanks in all things, that shows that you're progressing in your walk with the Lord because all of us can be ungrateful about something. All of us can look at something in our life or in our past and if we meditate on it long enough, it can make us ungrateful. Every, everything in this world, as I've said, it's meant to make us anxious and worried. If you turn on the news, you go online for more than 10 minutes, you just bounce around, it's geared to make you worried, anxious. It's, make you to, it's there to make you buy something. God wants us to have peace in him, to have joy in him, to be thankful in him. It's said of Christostom, who was a early church father, he was the archbishop of Constantinople in the fourth century that he was driven into exile. He was persecuted, he was despised, he died far away from the capital and the comforts that he once had. And it was there that when he was imprisoned and ultimately died far away prior to his death, he said these words, glory to God for all things. That was known as his favorite motto, glory to God for all things. That's a heart of gratitude. 
That's the heart of thankfulness, that no matter what you're going through, you say glory to God. I give you glory, Lord. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what, why I'm going through this. I don't know why all these trials are coming my way. I, I give you glory. I thank you, Lord. And this Greek word is eucharisteo. It's, from, it's where Catholics take this word and they call it the Eucharist. You ever heard that term? The Eucharist, communion. That's what communion is. It's giving thanks. It's saying, thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that you rose. Thank you that you conquered death. Thank you that by your grace I'm saved, that my eternity is set, that you have blessed me and you're going to freely give me all things. You died once for all. It's not a re-sacrifice like the Catholic Church teaches. It's a once for all. He paid the penalty of death for us, paid the sin, paid the consequences of what we deserve. So I close with these questions. What could lead that type of Christian away from the Lord? If you're disciplined in the Lord, if you're progressing in Christ, if you're stable, if you're rooted in Christ, if you're built up in him, if you're established in Christ, if you're always giving thanks, what can lead you astray? What kind of deception? What kind of empty philosophy? What traditions of men, as Paul says in verse 8? He puts 5 through 7, those verses, with these qualities together, kind of like Peter does where he says, if you're increasing in these things, nothing will lead you astray. I believe that's what Paul's doing here. Increase in these things and no deception, no elementary principles of the world, no traditions of man will be able to captivate you. Why? Because you're captivated by Jesus Christ. So nothing will be able to captivate the Christian who is enthralled with the beauty, the glory, and the wealth that comes through Christ. If you have him, you have everything. Amen.